The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I think that what you just described, right, the kind of two facts of let them through, they're my people, they're not going to hurt me, and I want to go to the Capitol, right, to follow the, my people. I think that's actually about as much of a smoking gun as one really could expect in this case. I mean, I really think the hearing, today's entire hearing, as re remarkable as it was, was price of admission for that one piece of evidence. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 29th, 2022. It was a blockbuster day at the January 6th committee hearings. Cassidy Hutchinson, former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, testified in riveting detail about what the president was up to and what the people around him were up to in the days leading up to January 6th and on the day itself. There's an assault against a Secret Service officer. There's a shattered plate and ketchup dripping down the wall. And there is a lot of warnings that violence was coming, warnings the president really didn't seem to mind. We debriefed on it all in the virtual jungle studio in Twitter spaces before a live audience. Joining me were Lawfare's publisher, David Priest, Lawfare's executive editor, Natalie Orpet, and Lawfare senior editors, Alan Rosenstein and Roger Parloff. We went over what was new. We went over what it means for the investigation to come, and we took audience questions. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 29th, the January 6th Committee, Day 6. David Priest, get us started. Uh, what are the major factual points that the committee extruded from the willing mouth of Cassidy Hutchinson? <laughs> well, where to begin? Ben, I have to admit, I was one of those skeptics who wasn't sure about the wisdom of broadcasting this breaking testimony that had to have an emergency hearing when it was a witness who had already appeared and so much had come out from the videotape depositions already. And my jaw was on the floor. There were major claims that were either new or newly detailed from what we, we'd heard before. Let me give you my top 10. Uh, first, we heard early on from her today that Mark Meadows was very aware and very explicit before January 6th, back to the 3rd or the 4th, that, in his words, things might get real, real bad on January 6th. Second, we heard that someone we haven't heard much about in these days, the, I can't believe I'm saying it, but the Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, actually was really looking to bail out. He wanted nothing to do with the post-election period and noted that this was not something the White House should be pursuing, meaning the effect to overturn the Electoral College results. Uh, third, we heard that the Secret Service agent who had become a political appointee within the White House, the Deputy Chief of Staff, uh, Tony Ornato, that he and others were aware at the White House before January 6th of the explicit threat reporting of things could get violent and out of control on the 6th. We heard the amazing news about the magnetometers that were controlling the access to the area around the president's speech on January 6th itself, and that there were people watching. The security officials poised all around the area were watching people 
around that area with advanced weaponry up to and including AR-15s. Fifth and related, Trump at that event was very, very concerned in an echo back to the very beginning of his presidency to the size of the crowd and was worried that it didn't look like the area around his speech was full enough. So he was urging his advisors to let people with weapons in to fill that space instead of going through the magnetometers and having the weapons taken away. And the reasoning was, yes, I want a bigger crowd size to be visible, but I want them to march to the Capitol. I just want them to be at my event first. So the line that we heard from her today was, take the effing mags away, the magnetometers. Yes, and with the explicit understanding, they're not, they're not, they don't pose a risk to me, implying that he fully understood that they posed a risk to someone else. That's right. In her words, if I have them right, they're not here to hurt me. Let them march to the Capitol. He just wanted them to show a big crowd size first, presumably with their weapons not being taken away. Uh, sixth, the uh, White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, said to, um, I believe it was to the witness, we're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement to Capitol Hill. That is, if the president himself goes to Capitol Hill and they have what Secret Service and the White House referred to as an OTR, an off-the-record movement of the president that's not already scheduled. Seventh, Trump, when being driven back to the White House, was so insistent that he go to the Capitol and lead his people that he grabbed the wheel of the car to try to force it to go to Capitol Hill. And when that did not work, he ended up assaulting his Secret Service agent. Number eight, we heard that Mark Meadows, White House Chief of Staff, when hearing what was happening on Capitol Hill, that rioters were proceeding into the Capitol, basically raised to Pat Cipollone, should the president do something? And Mark Meadows said he doesn't want to do anything, Pat. Nine, when it comes to pardons, we heard a little more explicitly than I'd heard that Rudy Giuliani had indicated interest in a pardon, and more explicitly that Mark Meadows not only indicated interest, but in the witness's words, he did seek a pardon. And 10th, I probably could go on to 100, but I'll stop with 10, that we saw a brief preview at the very end of attempts to influence the testimony of witnesses. That is, we saw that people were trying to tell people to play along with the team. If you want to stay good with Team Trump, you'll keep your mouth shut. And that's one hell of a preview for what we're going to see in the future hearings. Okay, so I want to open this up, Roger, Allen, or Natalie. What did David leave out? So David gave his top 10 list. Are there other major new factual developments that we learned about today? Yeah, I'll interject with one, which is that um, Cassie Hutchinson testified about a conversation that she had with Rudy Giuliani on January 2nd, in which uh, Giuliani said something about how um, we were going to be going down to the Capitol on January 6th. Um, the president was going to look really strong. And so it's clear that there had been discussions from several days before the 6th about that possibility. about the, and, and I believe in that conversation, he said that uh, the president himself was planning on going to the Capitol, that the, the we in that, in that sentence was not just uh, a crowd of people. And I think uh, there was also a little bit more information about the type of information that was known in those couple of days before the 6th, leading up to the 6th. And it was really quite amazing the number of people who knew. And, and I think just generally, you know, Hutchinson was able to speak to a lot of conversations that she was privy to. And I think the, the committee did a very good job up front at establishing the proximity that she had to all of these conversations by virtue of both her role and her physical location in the West Wing, and also uh, establishing her Republican credentials. She's had a, a very uh, solid career of working with Republicans and a good um, mechanism for sort of demonstrating bipartisanship on making these points. Roger? Yeah, those are very, I think, complete summaries. Those are a lot of the main points. I mean, when you think about this hearing, I was trying to compile a highlight reel, and it was really all highlight reel. It was just, it was just packed. If there's one thing that might have been left out, there were explicit warnings, apparently, by Eric Hirschman and Pat Cipollone, who tried to uh, get the speechwriters to remove all the references to fight fighting for Trump or the various references to fighting, the various references to Pence in the unquote legal concerns, as well as optics, it said. 
And then there were other warnings from uh, from these uh, from the White House counsel. Yeah, the idea of the idea of Trump going capital. Uh, they they mentioned the specific crimes they were worried about, which were the exact ones that we're now talking about. Obstruction. Well, she's she's not a lawyer. She said obstructing just and uh, defrauding something like the electoral certification, and also inciting a riot. I mean, I think after this hearing, we really have to be paying a little more attention than we have in the past to inciting a riot and inciting an insurrection as charges. But that's that gets into a different area. I will just add on a fact on the factual side that lawfare. We are so highbrow that we just had three people give the top factual uh, developments, and nobody mentioned smashed plates or <laughs> ketchup dripping down the wall. Uh, Expected. And I cannot let this go without because I live in the gutter. And that was the, a highlight to me. Ben, that's Alan, not an impeachable offense. That is merely horrible taste to have ketchup with every meal. And the fact that it ended up on the walls is probably better than ending up in someone's stomach. So first of all, I'm not sure that's right. Breaking White House property, wanton destruction of White House property, Good point. And defacing the Oval Office with ketchup. I don't know. I, I We got something going on here. Touché. Alan Rosenstein, quite apart from the factual or like, a lot of these are, are kind of sensational claims. How significantly do you think it moves the ball and in what way? Sure. And I actually do have one additional factual point to, to raise since we're going around the room connected to the ketchup. Um, I, you know, I think that the testimony about the conversation in the little dining room is another specific instance we hadn't heard before about where Trump said that Pence you know, deserved what was, what was going to happen to him, which I think, again, is relevant to the question of Trump's mental state throughout this whole process. You know, to your question, you know, my bottom line is that for reasons that I can't fully articulate, I'm still you know, processing this, something has snapped in, in my head, for, for lack of a better term. And I will say that before this hearing, I was in the camp that it was more likely than not that Trump would avoid criminal indictment and that that was all things considered appropriate. I, I now am increasingly convinced that it is more likely than not that Trump can and, in fact, should be indicted. Uh, specifically on what is in some sense a very straightforward charge, which is incitement to violence, incitement to riot, incitement to insurrection. To me, and again, it, it's hard to point to any quantum of evidence that shifts the judgment from don't indict to indict. You know, these questions are always very fact specific and there's a sort of gestalt quality to it. One day you see the rabbit, the other day you see, you know, the, the duck. I, I think to me, what this hearing definitely shows is that there can be no real question about Trump's mens rea, that Trump, you know, was told that he had lost, Trump was told about the possibility of violence, and that he was fine with it. Uh, and that even if he did not specifically intend for the rioters to go down and storm the Capitol and cause mayhem and injure people, he was on sufficient notice and showed such deliberate indifference to that, that that should be enough for criminal culpability. Um, in, you know, when you learn criminal law uh, you know, as, a, as a law student and you learn about the various types of murder, one type you learn about is what's called depraved heart murder. And the idea here is that if you go public and you fire your machine gun around because you think it's fun to fire your machine gun, even if you didn't actually intend to kill anybody, you acted with such deliberate indifference that the legal system views you as equally culpable to if you had intentionally murdered someone. I think that what we are seeing is a kind of depraved heart approach to uh, the possibility of violence and obstructing Congress and stopping the certification of the Electoral College vote. So that's the mens rea point. And then as to the question of what conduct constitutes, you know, the incitement or seditious conspiracy, I mean, you have to kind of parse each statute carefully. I think at this point, and here I'm shifting something that I thought previously and have you know, argued about in the Lawfare Podcast and National Security. I think at this point, even the Supreme Court's pretty stringent First Amendment test under Brandenburg versus Ohio would not get in the way. Um, of a prosecution, uh, given both what we know about the intent and also, I think, increasingly what we know about the special rhetorical position and power that the president has with respect to his supporters, and in particular, just the context of the day and the buildup with the big lie and the, the tweet that he sent out about Pence, knowing that Pence was in danger. At the end of the day, we are in uncharted territory. I think it's really important to understand that the error bars are in any prediction are enormous. Um, this is an area that really is unprecedented and one in which it is increasingly difficult to draw really clear line between law and politics and morality. So I caveat this enormously. I still don't uh, envy Merrick Garland at all. 
Um, but to me, you know, before the hearing, I was still skeptical. After the hearing, I switched to the other side. So, Natalie, this is uh, a long-running debate among uh, lawfare people in which Natalie and Roger have been on one side and Alan, who has now betrayed his own side, has switched sides. Uh, Natalie, you've been arguing that this could uh, get past Brandenburg for some time, as has Roger. I'm interested for you both, Natalie first and then Roger. What are the specific facts that we learn today that change that calculation from your point of view and reinforce the position that you've been taking? Sure. I, I'll add one quick thing to what Alan was saying, which is that um, another um, road of mens rea that is available here, which I think what we heard today even emphasizes even more than before, which is also something I will plug an article that we recently published on law, which does an excellent job explaining this, um, is called willful blindness. And that is the notion that basically you can't avoid liability by being an ostrich and putting your head in the sand. So the number of examples we heard today of Trump being told constantly of being aware of understanding the risks, including the risk of violence, it, it's it's just unavoidable that that he knew. And if he was choosing to not believe it, you know, there there is plenty of circumstantial evidence that he was being willfully blind to the information before him. And I think that does play into the Brandenburg question by saying, you know, intent is is one of the tricky things under Brandenburg and being able to give these examples as evidence is, is one way to I should say to back up for a second, the issue with how you read Brandenburg is that you can either read it expansively to say that there are very, very few things or no things that can get around the First Amendment to get you to incitement, or you can read it more narrowly on the facts of that case and uh, subsequent cases. And I think where Alan and I have diverged the most is on how factually anomalous what we have seen relating to January 6th and to Trump's conduct um, actually is, and whether the test that was articulated in Brandenburg and subsequent cases can be fairly mapped onto the facts that we've seen. Roger? Yeah, the biggest thing is all the warnings of violence, the most dramatic being the magnetometer testimony. I don't effing care if they have weapons, they're not here to hurt me, take the effing mags away, let them in, let my people in, they can march to the Capitol from the ellipse. I was I was struck that apparently, you know, that a lot of people were actually trying to get into this restricted zone with their weapons. So they actually knew what sorts of things they were bringing. And Tony Ornato, the deputy chief of staff, has a meeting with Meadows at 10 a.m. And Cassidy Hutchinson is there for it. And he's saying they've got knives, they've got guns, pistols, rifles, bear spray, body armor, spears, flagpoles. These effing people are fastening spears onto the end of the flagpoles. And so these are the facts that, well, presumably Trump knew he knew about the magnetometers when he was delivering the speech, the words about fighting, the words about Pence. And also going back a little, I mean, people have touched these points. Uh, Giuliani knew on January 2nd that they were going to the Capitol or, or he knew about this plan. He was excited about it. And and Cassidy asks uh, Mark Meadows about it. And she sa he says, lot going on, Cass. Things might get real bad on January 6th. There's the John Ratcliffe warning that David mentioned. There's another warning from uh, the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien. Ornato is giving warnings. And, and, the, and the White House counsel are trying to strike words out of the speech unsuccessfully. And he's adding words to the speech, mainly about Pence. And so, you know, it's just he's lighting the fuse. It's, it's very clear. It's very powerful. Yeah, so I, I would add to that that the point that Roger starts with there is, I think, from a potential criminal point of view, really, really significant that he ordered people let in whom he knew were armed on the explicit theory that they didn't pose a risk to him and he wanted them armed to march to the Capitol. And then a point Roger left out, but I think is reinforcing of this, that he is then upset enough about not being able to go with them 
that he violently assaults his Secret Service detail and tries to hijack the car by by grabbing the steering wheel. So if the standard in Brandenburg is like calculated to and likely to produce imminent lawless action, you're a hell of a lot closer to that today than you were this morning, I think. It is a mistake, I think, to frame this hearing and this whole thing as a search for a smoking gun. Of course. Smoking guns are overrated, right? That, that's not how you build criminal cases. It's not necessary. That should not be the threshold. At the same time, I think that what you just described, right, the kind of two facts of let them through, they're my people, they're not going to hurt me, and I want to go to the Capitol, right, to follow the, my people. I think that's actually about as much of a smoking gun as one really could expect in this case. I mean, I really think the hearing, today's entire hearing, as remarkable as it was, was price of admission for that one piece of evidence. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's important that we not keep shifting the goalposts and demand more and more and more evidence. Although I will admit that I'm totally that person because I'm super cautious by nature. I, I mean, that one sentence, I think, is enough to establish both, frankly, as a legal matter and also as a matter of constitutional political morality, whether you want to indict a former president, which is a really big deal, big effing deal, as the current president would say, that statement kind of tells you everything you need to know. All right. All of which, however, turns on the credibility of the witness. And remember, some of this stuff is hearsay that they would have to get other witnesses to testify to, although that is something the Justice Department is in a position to do. A huge amount turns on the credibility of Cassidy Hutchinson. Natalie, you are among the group of us, the person who has spent the most time prepping witnesses. What do we think of her? Is she the noble public servant of Benny Thompson's description? Is she a rat that left a sinking ship or swum away from a sunk ship? Is she, is she somebody who will function well as a witness in a different sort of proceeding? And how do you think she held up in this one? I thought that she was exceptionally well prepared, and I think she was very careful in her language, which is very important, you know, is less important in a congressional proceeding where uh, there are not the same sorts of rules as there are in legal proceedings about, for example, hearsay, but she was still very careful. So she was clear when she was asked questions whether she had actually heard something herself or whether it was her understanding. For example, she would say, she would be asked, did that phone call happen? And she would say either yes, if she had heard the phone call herself, or she would say, that's my understanding. And that's a really important distinction. You know, I think to, to non-lawyers that may seem a little excessive um, in terms of precision, but it's really, really important for maintaining credibility. And I thought she did an excellent job in that sense. I also think, as I mentioned before, um, Congresswoman Cheney did a really good job establishing her credibility just by virtue of her proximity to all of these conversations and her role as an executive assistant, which you, you just do as an executive assistant have an incredible amount of exposure to what's going on in these very, very small circles. David, so you have been, uh, you are our resident historian of presidential misconduct. <laughs> and I think it is fair to say that there have never been allegations of presidential misconduct of this type. But I don't want to assume that, you know, you know, back during the John Tyler administration, <laughs> there weren't, you know, or during, you know, Millard Fillmore that time when he gathered a mob. How unprecedented is this type of thing? Well, it's, it's unprecedented in two ways. And people who study history really, really hate the word unprecedented because you can almost always dig something up that is a close parallel. But when it comes to bad presidential behavior, we, we are really in uncharted waters here. And as someone who studies this stuff and writes about this stuff, it is, you know, business is too good in this sense. The two ways are presidential behavior and then the nature of testimony itself that is so explosive and such a bombshell being delivered within congressional testimony itself. First thing on the president's. We really don't have a precedent like this. I mean, in Watergate, I'm kind of sick of Watergate analogies at this point, and I've gotten to know John Dean over the past several years well, and I really like him. I really do. But I don't want to hear again about Watergate comparisons. John Dean testified about the president's efforts to cover up a burglary and the connections it might lead to. The leading question was, 
what did the president know and when did he know it? Now the question is more, how many specific weapons of which types did the president know he was directing toward an attempted coup? This is not apples and oranges. This is comparing things of a, of a different type. On the issue of stunning testimony, I was not quite prepared for this to leapfrog over all such shocking testimony. The only parallels in my mind, apart from some of the interesting things within this administration that we're talking about itself, like Alex Vindman's testimony about the Ukraine aid blackmail that led to impeachment, Jim Comey's testimony back in June 2017, I think, when he spoke very clearly about the president's behavior. But going back through all of history, I can think of only three truly shocking congressional testimonies before this one. One was Oliver North. In, and it seems like all of these took place in the summertime. In July of 1987, when Oliver North talked very clearly about circumventing the usual covert action mechanisms of the U.S. government. Going further back, of course, you had Watergate. And for me, it wasn't John Dean's testimony quite as much as Alexander Butterfield coming forward and revealing that Richard Nixon had taped conversations, which, of course, then led to the future testimony. And then going back again to the summer of 1954, if I remember, the McCarthy hearings, when he accused an attorney during the hearings of communist ties and the famous line emerged, have you no sense of decency? This leapfrogs all of those because we, we actually have strong evidence from someone with credibility, as Natalie said, of the president knowingly directing arms towards a coordinate branch of government in order to disrupt the functioning of government. An attempted coup within an administration against an incoming administration because of the selection process in the Congress and the Electoral College. That takes this to a new level on both fronts in terms of presidential scandals and in terms of shocking testimony before Congress. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. All right. So I want to, before we move on to what happens now, I just want to ask each of you whether you agree with David that there have been you know, that this is at a qualitatively different level than any testimony about a president ever given to Congress before. Roger, Allen, and then Natalie. I think that's right. I mean, D David gave a terrific overview. I can't remember anything like the altercation in The Beast as he lunges toward the clavicle of uh, Bobby Engel after having been prevented from grabbing the steering wheel. No, I, I think uh, I agree with uh, David on this. I'll just leave it there. Alan? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I like David. I'm always trying to find something that makes something not unprecedented because I'm a, a wet blanket in that regard, but I think this stands alone. Natalie? I, I agree. I mean, I am, I am not a historian like David, um, so I can't say that I can compare it to past testimonies, but I will say that something that is probably unprecedented it has to do with the way in which the committee is able to conduct this proceeding. That has to do with the way that they are producing it, the way that they are creating this presentation of their work. So typically after congressional investigations, you'll see a written report. Here we're seeing not a written report, but a combination of live testimony, taped testimony, examples from text messages and emails, um, video of, for example, today we saw a video of Cassidy Hutchinson giving interviews in the past, combined with, with her live testimony of today, which is another aspect that really adds to her credibility and consistency in what she's said. Um, I think the effectiveness of presenting information in this way is probably fairly said to be unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, this is a novel creation of this committee, this idea that instead of writing a big report that goes thunk when it lands on a desk and has a gazillion footnotes and 
that journalists kind of pour through and we get highlights of and most people don't read, it's kind of like a ongoing, it's part television show, part congressional hearing, part, you know, book report by the committee, uh, you know, how, how we spent our, our year. And it's a novel, very novel presentation and mode of presentation. David, you wanted to get in. Yeah, in that sense, I can't help but reflect on something that several of us spent a lot of time and energy on not that long ago, which was the Mueller investigation and the Mueller report. And the Mueller report had what you just described. It had extensive evidence. It had overwhelming logic and argumentation. It had almost uncountable footnotes. And for many people on Capitol Hill, it actually had that thunk that you described, and clearly it did not it did not clearly communicate the gravity of the situation. I have to think that Benny Thompson, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, Adam Schiff, and the others on the committee are quite aware of that and have consciously made this different than the Mueller report in terms of that presentation method in order to avoid some of the, frankly, mistakes that were made by presenting it in a logical form that it was assumed people would want to see and hear. All right. Natalie, I want to ask you about the surprise element of this hearing, because this was this hearing was not supposed to happen. The committee kind of let it be known that they had received new information and scheduled this hearing on a kind of emergency basis. And then the witness they presented was a witness who they had actually presented her interviews before. And so I watched this thing trying to figure out, quite apart from the value of her testimony, which is extreme, what was actually the novel information that they had learned? Do we think she just didn't tell them this stuff earlier in prior interviews? Or do we think they knew to ask questions now for some reason that they didn't previously know to ask? What's your read on how this hearing came to be? I wondered the same thing. Um, I think ultimately we won't know, most likely. Um, I will say that it is far from uncommon in investigations to continually interview people, especially as you learn new information. So, you know, is it possible that the committee received information in the course of the previous hearings when at the end of every hearing, um, Chairman Thompson referenced, um, I think, a, a hotline or an email address that could send any additional information they might have? You know, they, they may have learned something there that raised for them a question that they didn't specifically ask her in the past. And that doesn't mean that she was being evasive. It may just mean that they asked a question in a different way. They looked back at the transcript of the interview that she had given and they say, you know, I didn't really ask that the way that I wanted to. Let's go back to her. Um, and it may be that what's new this, this, this time around is that she was willing and able to testify live, which has, I think we can all agree, quite a different impact than watching the taped depositions. I also know, and I, I don't, I apologize, I don't have the timeline here, but I know that Cassidy Hutchinson changed attorneys at some point over the course of this. I don't know if that was between the last taped deposition she did with the committee and now, or whether that happened prior. All right, we are gonna go to audience questions. Uh, while people are queuing up, uh, I have one additional question for Roger and one for Alan. Roger, we keep warning everybody, this is not a criminal proceeding. These are not, you know, evidence, what counts as probative evidence here and what counts as probative evidence in a grand jury are very different, not to mention a criminal court. And yet it's very hard to watch this testimony without trying to map all kinds of things onto criminal proceedings that have not yet materialized. That said, we've seen a bunch of search warrants executed recently, a bunch of subpoenas issue. How do we think this is mapping onto the Justice Department's activity? Hmm. Um, we haven't gotten this far up still, but I mean, you just have to look at all the apparent, all of the crimes that come to mind, the, the uh, obstructing a, uh, a uh, corruptly obstructing uh, an official proceeding, defrauding the United States, inciting a riot, inciting insurrection, and, and possibly just conspiracy. And um, I also thought this hearing, uh, Mark Meadows comes off as a worse guy than I realized. Uh, and I, I didn't have a high opinion, but this was a bad hearing for him. He knew a lot. 
he's always there on the couch scrolling through the phone as people are telling him uh, about the horrible things that are about to happen or that are happening. And uh, finally, you know, Pat Chipalone has to run in the room, into the room and say, someone's going to die and blood's going to be on your effing hands. So I, I think he has more problems than I may have realized in the past. But it also all depends on who will testify and how close are they and, you know, all of the problems with proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But those, those are my thoughts. Alan? Yeah, I, I mean, the, obviously it's not necessarily the committee's job to build a criminal case for DOJ, nor does DOJ probably need the committee to do it for them. Um, presumably DOJ knows all the important things that the committee knows. And there are also legal considerations for DOJ to take into account. You know, in particular, DOJ is in an awkward position because it has to decide whether to prosecute a former president, which has big implications for the powers, duties, and institutional health of the presidency as a general matter. And there's always been a tension uh, within DOJ as to, on the one hand, impartially doing justice and being separate from the White House, on the other hand, also being appointed by the president and having a vested interest in the president's powers and prerogatives. And nowhere is this tension greater than within the Office of Legal Counsel, which over a number of administrations, both Democratic and Republican, um, has, as a general matter, continuously pushed the frontier of executive power uh, and has been quite strong on, for example, issues like executive privilege or presidential immunity or the president's uh, ability to be indicted. Uh, this, of course, famously was a bar to you know, what uh, Robert Mueller could do in his investigation of Trump. At the same time, OLC is just a part of the Justice Department. They're just delegated their power by the attorney general. The attorney general ultimately has to decide when it is in the greater interest of the president and most importantly of the constitution and the nation, because that is of course to whom the oath is made, to say, look, we're going to potentially take a risk. We're going to open the presidency as an institution up to liability because we think in this case, it's just too important to play any sort of games around, around the president's powers. Uh, and that's of course a very difficult, that, that's not an easy decision to make, to be clear. But I, I, I think that this is not something where anyone can sort of hide behind uh, you know, OLC, for example. Um, I think this is one of these situations in which the attorney general has to act like a you know statesman and make a decision. All right. Ann Kornhauser, historian and famed legal journalist. You get the first question today. Hi, how are you? Thanks so much for doing this. I don't remember who said this. It may have been Alan, but um, it was striking that there are two main things we learned today from a legal standpoint, um, or at least that were reinforced. Uh, one was that Trump knew that there were armed protesters trying to get into the Capitol and did not want to stop them, uh, would be the mildest way to put it. And second, that he wanted to go with them. And it's on, on the second one, I didn't hear every moment of today's hearing, but I don't think I heard why. Does it matter why? What is the legal significance of the fact that he said he wa or was trying to, to actually join the protesters in some way? Thanks. That's a really interesting question. Anybody have thoughts on what the significance of his wanting to go would be? I suspect that it would um, go to the question of incitement. If, if Trump had been allowed to go, you know, would the threat, the, the likelihood of imminent threat have been greater? Certainly is the fact that he was prevented from going a reason to sort of not expect that degree of imminence. Um, I think I think it raises that question. Let me add here, it depends on something we do not yet know, and presumably we, we may get some insight on in future hearings, which is what was the president intending to do by going to the Capitol? Is the Capitol the Capitol grounds? And he was going to do another rally outside the security perimeter, which a president certainly can do. It's not a normal thing to do, but a president can go and make a speech near the outside perimeter uh, of the Hill while there's a mob forming. Or was the president hoping to go inside to personally walk into the chamber to you know, seize control of the gavel with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers at his side, hoping that the Capitol Police would part ways because after all, he is the president and he maybe in their mind should have access to this building or force their way through and, and the president follows. 
to me, there's a, a very big difference between those two. Both of them are unseemly. Both of them show a catastrophic and galactic lack of class and, and decorum. But speaking outside the Capitol while a procedure is going on is different than storming the building and using people that you have incited to break through security measures and get you into the room in order to disrupt the procedure directly. I agree with Natalie. I mean, I agree with both of you, but Natalie about in increasing the incitement phase, uh, you know, the president has obviously no role to play at that joint session. And I think that one of the taped witnesses said that he did talk about going in and giving a speech to the to the chamber, one of the chambers or maybe to the joint session. And I, what it went to the chip alone definitely saw that this was something he did not want to happen, that this increased his liability. It's, it's increased everybody's liability. And it just is obstructing the proceeding. But to answer another part of your question, no, there, it didn't seem that anyone knew precisely what he wanted to do there. Paula, the floor is yours. Um, so my question is, what are your concerns that if any type of efforts are made after this for any type of criminal charges, that those efforts will continue into a Republican administration under the DOJ? Or if you think that those will become fruitless, not because of that they lack any merit, but because you know some type of political considerations will undermine anything that has taken place now or will take place within the next couple of years before the next presidential election? So I, I guess I'll take that myself. I think the short answer to that is that uh, in the event that Donald Trump is reelected, uh, he will pardon everybody. He has made that clear. He's all but promised it. And I think he can also be safely uh, assumed to appoint somebody to the Justice Department, run the Justice Department, who would not continue this investigation uh, in a meaningful sense. And I, I think uh, that would be part of the cost of, of electing Donald Trump again. The other question, to the extent that you're talking about a different Republican, I think it very much depends who the Republican who you would elect uh, is I have no doubt that Mitt Romney, not that he's going to run for president again, would let the you know, prosecutions proceed as a Democrat would. I also have no doubt that, you know, I, I have much more doubt about, for example, Ron DeSantis. And so I think you have to you have to be very particular there about what you mean when you say a Republican. Tony Cava, the floor is yours. Uh, hello. I think you guys addressed the legal aspect of my question but maybe we could talk about the politics of it. It seems like there's uh, these two visceral visual images, um, Trump throwing a tantrum in the beast and assaulting his Secret Service agent, and uh, the other being Mark Meadows with his feet up on the couch, twiddling with his phone and not really caring what's going on. It seems like visually that really personifies the Republicans' party's reaction to Trump and to the pandemic and everything else. So I'm just wondering politically is, it's the kind of stink that just won't ever wash off, especially if video of any of this comes to light. Thank you. So I, I guess I'll, I'll hazard a, an answer here. I mean, none of us are, you know, political pundits. And so the answer is who knows? And one of the most remarkable things about Trump is that despite having a very, uh, despite having a low ceiling, uh, as it were, for his popularity, he also had a surprisingly high floor. And, you know, throughout his presidency, his you know, popularity was constantly within this very, very narrow band. I think it's too early to say um, what this will do to Trump's political fortunes. I think there's some early polling that suggests that this is having a meaningful effect on how not just Americans, but in particular Republicans view him. I think at this point, most polls and the betting, you know, political betting markets show that uh, you know, Ron DeSantis has a lead on uh, 2024. Will that stick? It's hard to know. What if he, what if Trump is indicted? Will that you know, finally get enough people to sort of give up on him and flee to DeSantis? Maybe. Will that make him a martyr? That's also possible. My instinct is that this is actually a meaningful political problem uh, for Donald Trump, not only because it's quite bad for him in the eyes of Americans, but it also gives other Republicans, even Trumpy Republicans, none of whom actually like Trump, kind of an excuse and ability to, I think, sideline him. Uh, I, I, you know, whether or not this will affect the midterms or a broader political realignment, I have absolutely uh, no idea. Itamar Levior, the floor is yours. So repeatedly during the Mueller investigation, uh, we heard that it's the role of the legislative branch to hold the executive in check. 
but we never actually got anything out of that. And now we're talking about potentially uh, having criminal liability for Trump uh, due to these investigations. So I'm curious, what does that say uh, about the ability of Congress to hold the president accountable? And in light of that, should we uh, impeach Trump yet a third time? Natalie, do you have thoughts on this? This mischievous question? <laughs> yeah, so I have said uh, many times, um, I'm sure people are sick of hearing me say it, but you know, I, I feel strongly that there is too much focus on how everything that the committee is doing here will be mapped onto criminal charges or cases against Trump or anyone else for that matter. Um, I think the committee's purpose is different here. And I think that the committee's purpose is really valuable. You know, there there is less satisfaction in the outcome of a committee's work than there is in a proclamation from a jury that someone is guilty. But despite the fact that there isn't a clear, you know, adjudication of guilt that can come out of this non-adjudicative body, they can, in fact, hold him accountable. You know, is, is it the case that that Congress did not succeed in impeaching him? Yes. Is it the case that they considered using the 25th Amendment but didn't? Yes. Uh, I don't think that those are, although those are the structural ways of holding a president accountable, I don't think they are the only ways of holding a president accountable. And I think that this is changing minds. Of course, I don't have any empirics on that, but I think the concentration of this evidence, the degree of it, and the way that the committee is presenting a really methodical, comprehensive picture of of what happened and of Trump's behavior and knowledge is very compelling. And I think it does hold him accountable by having a public airing of this information. Third impeachment, Alan, completely nuts? You know, I don't think so, to be perfectly honest. You know, I think there's a legal case that can be made for it. Um, I don't think there's a bar to impeaching people who are you know, currently in office. I think that uh, the possibility of not just removal, but he's not president right now, but more importantly, prohibition from uh, future office is uh, so important for the health of American democracy, given everything we know about Trump, that it's uh, potentially worth the admitted political awkwardness of impeaching someone three times, which ordinarily would not be uh, would not be a good look. Now, only, the only point of doing that is if you can get enough Republicans to, to meet the two-thirds uh, Senate uh, threshold. I um, mean, you may not be able to, but uh, I don't think it's crazy. David, crazy? I will uh, disagree on one point with, with Alan, which is it is crazy unless it is guaranteed in advance that you have those votes because another attempt, which does successfully impeach the president as the previous two did, but that fails to remove the president or in this case disqualify him for future office through the Senate's judgment would be catastrophic with the additional details of what Trump did and how he did it for the Senate to rule that even that does not disqualify someone for running an office. The, the risk is too great for the minimal benefit of an additional impeachment process. I'll just say one other quick thing, which is another remedy that is a little under the radar that I believe would still be available is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, although we don't understand because there is no precedent for it exactly how that would play out. But that's, right. uh, that would be a mechanism to prevent Trump from ever running from office again. So we will discuss that in a different context because Roger is like the world's expert on it. Josh Jacobson, the floor is yours. You get the penultimate question today. Thank you, Ben. And that is one of my favorite words. Uh, my question, and I know uh, we're talking about how this is, the committee isn't focused on legal liability, but I am curious what this means for either legal liability or uh, pressure to get other folks uh, in Trump's orbit to testify. Yeah, let me let me take a crack at that one. So what it means for legal liability is exactly nothing, except in the very limited sense that these are sworn statements. And, you know, if evidence comes out that somebody's lied and there's you know been a thousand interviews, uh, you can be prosecuted for that. But, you know, look, you should assume the Justice Department has access to the information that it wants and needs. It has more powerful evidence collection tools than the committee does. You should not assume that the Justice Department has been asking the same questions as the committee has, because their job isn't to tell the whole story. So it's perfectly possible that information has come to light in the course of this sort of top-down committee investigation, which starts at the question of Donald Trump's behavior, that has not yet arisen in the course of the Justice Department's bottoms up. Uh, investigation, which starts with the individual rioters. So it's perfectly possible that the Justice Department learned things today 
you should assume that they have extremely powerful tools to follow up on whatever they want to. Liz Warner, you get the last question today. Thank you, Ben. Pretty practical question. I'm just wondering, can those Secret Service agents who were in the car be compelled to testify? I'd love to hear from them. Ah, so that's a funny question because this <laughs> issue came up in the context of, of Clinton's, the Ken Starr investigation of Clinton, where uh, Secret Service agents had unusual access to the details of his affair with Monica Lewinsky. They, the Secret Service asserted a privilege. The D.C. Circuit uh, rejected the so-called Secret Service privilege. And so the answer is a very simple yes, they can be compelled to testify. There is no service privilege before a grand jury. Let me add a great question and timely for a different reason, which is the episode of our weekly podcast Chatter this week is with former U.S. Secret Service Special Agent John Wackrow, who discusses a whole range of Secret Service issues that are relevant to this information today, including the issue of Secret Service agents having to testify or otherwise cooperate with investigations. And he illuminated that issue quite well for us, and that will drop on Thursday morning on your podcast feeds. We are going to leave it there. David Priest, Roger Parloff, Alan Rosenstein, Natalie Orpit, and everybody who joined, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is just kind of Twitter, you know, they somehow record all this. Look, you should do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast if you're not already a member, a material supporter of Lawfare, become one on patreon.com slash lawfare. If you are already, but you don't tweet every episode of the Lawfare podcast, get on it because there are still people who have not been brought into the light. We can help them, people. The Lawfare podcast is edited by the one, the only Jen Patia Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.